This is episode 30, Fasting, Feasting and Exercise in a Christian Spirit, and we'll throw in a little bit of dieting for good measure. Hello, I'm here with Charlie Dice, and this week we're going to turn the tables around a bit. Normally Charlie is the one that interviews me. Um, today, in our exploration of uh, how we maintain the, the body uh, in uh, harmony with the whole person, uh, the, so that's why we've called it the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're going to discuss uh, exercise and dieting and fasting and feasting, feasting and see how a modern life and a modern approach to these things might uh, inform or complement or work alongside happily uh, a traditional Christian approach. Before we do that, I'm going to tell two stories which uh, suggested to me that this is something that we should look at. Uh, the first one is a homily that was given on New Year's, uh, the closest Sunday to New Year's Day, by Father Sebastian Carnazzo, uh, my pastor. Uh, and he talked about people making New Year's resolutions. And he's, he suggested that we made three. He said one uh, would be to do some exercise, even if it's a walk, um, do something more for your body. The second, was to do something intellectual, uh, serve the mind, do some reading, strain your intellect a bit. And the third, do something to deepen your spiritual life, introduce some prayers, or review what you're doing on, um, on a daily basis. And I thought this was insightful. What he's doing there is uh, considering the body, the uh, soul or the the intellect and aspect of the soul that we can nourish directly and then uh, the spirit that aspect of us which uh, is in connection with God and uh, by which we can love God uh, but of course what he wants us to do is bring this to the liturgy to our worship so that the whole person is better able to worship God um, and uh, partake of the divine nature so um, that made me think about this topic of exercise particularly. Um, and another one which has an influence, it's another story, is uh, a friend of mine from Oxford from years ago, from the university. I went home to England and we had a dinner party and we were all just catching up. And this would be some 25, 30 years after we left university. There's a small group of us still in touch with each other. And so we see what, uh, what we're doing. And what interested me was that, uh, that my friend Gail had started to do yoga. In fact, she'd been doing this for some years. Uh, now, I should explain that when we were at university, we had no uh, spiritual uh, interest, any of us that I was aware of, until certainly I didn't, and it wasn't something I talked about with any of my friends. Um, so she started yoga. She did it initially for the, uh, for the physical benefits. Um, but with yoga, uh, you can't get away from the, uh, what they feel is the spiritual dimension. They will start to encourage meditation uh, at the very least. I, I actually don't know a great deal about it. I've never been to a yoga session. And uh, what happened was that uh, Gail then started to do the meditation and eventually became an instructor 
And when I spoke to her, she was uh, had just started a business going into companies and certainly investment banks in the in the city of London and training executives in meditation in order to relieve stress. And they sold this with scientific evidence. Uh, they didn't present it as spiritual. They just said it helps uh, the relieve stress. It helps the heart function. There's all this sort of medical evidence to show that it's true. Um, and the thing that struck me about this is that um, I wasn't aware of that Christianity had made that connection between exercise, if I can call it that, and, and the spirit so directly. And I wondered if it's possible. Maybe it's wrong for us to do so. I'm not, I'm not saying we just adopt yoga. I don't want to do that. I want to think of, at least start a process of thinking about how can we connect these two. Now, Charlie here, he's got the T-shirt to prove it. He's an instructor in something called MoveNat, which is a new form of exercise. Um, and we'll get Charlie to talk about it in a second so he can correct me if my summary is wrong. I'm going to call it, in a way, it's a little bit of a sort of dynamic yoga that informs muscle function and flexibility through movement rather than a sort of static stress. And aims to capture natural movement um, and uh, it, it is not presented with, in a, with a spiritual dimension but it struck me that we could think about how this might uh, start from this starting point how we might use it to inform uh, our spiritual dimension as well. Now the other thing that I want to talk about we're on Charlie's waiting patiently and I can see we, we um, we'll talk about that first but at some point it may be in another another podcast, uh, I want to think also about the other way in which we uh, nourish the, the body and uh, maintain it, and that, of course, is eating. And most people today, that means dieting, so that we've got enough food, and it's about controlling what we eat, rather than going out and finding, get a, getting enough to eat. For some, I'm talking about Western society, some people are starving, of course, and for them, uh, it's the other way around. Uh, but uh, the Christianity has a, a very strong record of combining this uh, eating patterns, that is, and what we eat and when we eat with the spiritual life, and that is fasting. And it would be interesting to think about dieting methods that uh, inform our health, if you like, or nourish us in a, in a, a, a modern, in the way that the modern uh, people, the modern society, Think, uh, accepts so looking at the scientific basis for example but then seeing how that might combine uh, harmoniously with the spiritual so that's what we're, we're going to do some of this is going to be uh, speculative and uh, we'll see where it leads us um, but uh, the other side is I think that what we agree is that we need to be healthy of body and mind and spirit and that uh, and so mind and spirit I'm presenting there as aspect of the soul, so body and soul. And therefore it is good to think about the nourishment of the soul, but as Christians we should do so in regard to the, to our, to the nourishment of the body, but as Christians we should do this in regard to the soul as well. And I would argue that if we do that, then it will actually help the nourishment of the body because all of these things work together. Okay. That's the introduction. Charlie and I are going to talk first uh, about 
exercise and how that might um, help us. And I'm going to hand it over to you, Charlie. So in as, in as much detail as you think is appropriate, just tell us about uh, what you do and why it interests you and bring into that, if you like, also um, some thoughts about how it might uh, touch your faith, how you approach this as a Catholic, uh, just, just in an ordinary, as an ordinary person. We're not claiming that you're sort of, you know, have a deep theology on this, that you might have, I don't know. But I just want you to tell us your thoughts on this. So, so how, how does it work, Charlie? Sure. Thanks, David. Uh, that, I think you started to touch on kind of the disclaimer that we're not giving advice here. This is not medical advice. Yeah. It's just a description of something that, that I've found is a practice that has been beneficial in my life and that has in ways informed some of my, my thoughts on, on a, an overall spiritual practice. And I think when it comes to exercise, uh, that's one way of framing it is, is a compartmentalized category where we are doing a certain kind of movement or uh, playing a sport with the intention of making our body stronger or healthier. Uh, but I think that another way of looking at it, which the people in the yoga community have discovered, is that there is a whole field of embodied practices that can be used to kind of deepen your sense of connection to your body and that can make uh, this, this sense of kind of alienation from our bodies that we get uh, from the modern world in a lot of ways that can, that can lessen that, that sense of alienation. And so I discovered this, this system called MoveNat, which is the practice of natural movement uh, or the practice of movement in nature, whichever you prefer. But you can kind of think of it as uh, an evolutionary approach to uh, reclaiming the, the authentic movements that have defined humanity through our, the critical phase of our evolution. So saying that, you know, we, we are the product of, of millions of years of evolution. And, and for most of those millions of years, we were doing things a certain way. We were, you know, hunter gatherers for a, for a long period of time. And this hunter gatherer lifestyle is, at odds or there's a mismatch between the way that people live then and the way that people live now. And so just things like, uh, you know, running, climbing, jumping, these are things that we do in a, in a limited sense today, but uh, they would have been important for everyday life uh, of, of our ancestors. And even more recently, if you look at more recent uh, human history, post, you know, just, just, uh, you know, post prehistoric, but, but still, at a time when our lives required a lot more movement for survival, people who engaged in far, you know, intensive farming or uh, a more pastoral lifestyle, no matter how you cut it, we were doing a lot more movement than, we're, than we do today when most of our work is kind of hunched over the computer or we drive you know, places. And, and so it's kind of this, this crisis of sedentarism, of, of constantly being in a comfortable state that we need to break out of. And uh, whether we do it as some sort of structured exercise or whether we just try to incorporate some of these principles into our lives so that movement is woven into the fabric to a greater extent, um, that's, we, we, we wanna look at movement as something that we can do that's, that's a little bit more joyful and that we don't necessarily just look at as a chore. 
Okay. I might come back and just probe a little further on this sort of evolutionary hypothesis. This is something that I'm interested in. Uh, but um, before we do that, before we do that, could you just explain a little bit more about how, supposing I came to you, I'm 56, I've never done move nat. I think I'm not bad for a 56 year old in terms of fitness. I'm certainly not at the lower end of the spectrum. Um, how would you start me off? How do I begin to incorporate this? Just so we can get a picture of what you're doing in this natural movement brought into the modern life. Sure. So there is a discipline of natural movement, and it's a little bit paradoxical because on the one hand, it is supposed to be a natural movement. It's supposed to be kind of instinctual and something that uh, – uh, you know, initially when we're learning to move, we don't need to do it in this way where it's, it's not necessarily taught to us. We learn to walk and we learn to move mostly through trial and error and through observation. And I actually think that it's important to keep this somewhat improvisational element when you're learning and doing MoveNet. So what I usually do with, with the group that I work with here in Berkeley, we just have a, a semi-weekly meetup that gets together in the park and we usually are starting in the grassy area. And the first thing we do might just be, you know, sitting up and getting, uh, sitting, or sorry, sitting down and getting back up off the ground. And this whole area of ground movements is something that we, we lose when we spend most of our time in, in chairs or at desks. So getting on the ground and kind of feeling what it's like to be uh, in a squatting position, which would be, a kind of a default resting state for a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people that, that still today live in, in tribes or in, in more what, what we would call like primitive uh, environments. Rather than sitting in chairs, they usually just go into a deep squat and they can hold that squat for long periods of time. It's, it's very comfortable in the, in the same way that sitting is for us, uh, except it doesn't have the same kind of, uh, you know, over time from, from sitting, people develop these back problems. Whereas when you, when you go into a, a deep squat, you're kind of engaging this whole pelvic thoracic area and you're, you're having to be mindful of your posture, sitting up straight. And uh, from there, we talk about things like breathing and the posture that is associated with good breathing, uh, diaphragmatic breathing, which is where you breathe in uh, into your stomach and out. So it's about reclaiming just very intentional but simple movements, things that that we might you know still do on a on a regular basis. Oftentimes we do need to get down on on the ground and then get back up. Not only if we've fallen down, but you know you just bend down to pick something up. There's a more and a less efficient way of doing that. Um, from there, we might work some simple progressions that involve balance. Uh, so you're engaging more of these systems, inner ear systems of coordination and feeling how the points of contact between your feet and the ground uh, can lead to better or worse balance and coordination. Uh, when it comes to jumping, there are ways to use your upper body to generate momentum, to jump more efficiently. And then with running too, uh, running, you know, it's not just a, a succession of forward jumps. There are kind of ways that you can use gravity to uh, continually just channel the, the momentum that you've already generated into your next step. And so efficient running technique is another thing. Uh, so it, all in all, it's, it's about, uh, yeah, there, there are principles like efficiency and, uh, you know, 
uh, adaptive. You want to figure out, you know, based on if I need to get from here to there, what's the best way to do that? I can go over it. I can go under it. Maybe I'm going to put my arm down to get over this rock and then step over. Uh, so there's, there's kind of general principles that can guide what's overall an instinctual and improvisational approach to movement. Right. Uh, first of all, I'm glad you mentioned the joy of doing it. As someone, I, when I was younger, I did a lot of sport, and I still go hiking and walking. And it isn't just for the views; it's the the exercise itself is a pleasure. And I feel that it's what we're meant to do in some way. It may not be consistent with MoveNet, but I do remember the uh, the absolute pleasure of playing tennis or field hockey. Mm -hmm. I used to do uh, soccer. I played a lot of soccer, and it's uh, great, great fun. And so you just, as I remember the, uh, the quote from, I think it was the character in the film, The Chariots of Fire. Uh, and one of the characters was a, a Scottish missionary. So this is a, it's a dramatization of a real situation about some British athletes at the Olympics in the 1920s. And one of them was a Scottish missionary and the, his church uh, was trying to persuade him not to go to the Olympics so he could go to China and be a missionary. And, uh, he had this wonderful quote uh, against it. He said that when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Hmm. And that is what is what is like anyone who's done sports, uh, I'm going to say, because that, that's my experience. When you get to a certain level of fitness and competency, uh, you feel joyful. I think it's not just the uh, being able to do it with relative ease. So you're fit and your heart is pumping. It's you're aware of the grace and ease with which you do it. So in tennis or golf, things that need a high level of skill, you know when you get it right and it just feels natural. And there's a, mm -hmm. there's a real joy to it. And I think that the activity that extends that idea and builds on that and takes it out of competitive role is uh, dance and ballet and tradition. So again, uh, there's something to even the disco dancing. If it's joyful, you know, uh, there's a good side to that. It's it, it's it's people just enjoying their bodies. And uh, now there's a ne very negative side to it sometimes as well. I'm not going to deny that. But the, at, at root, all of this is is good. So I'm glad you did that. So it, let's come back to learning the process before we get into the the philosophy about it. I'd like to you to tell us what, what sort of long term commitment is there to learn this and then also what's the result how would it change for me you've seen me move and creak around the house a little bit and you know clutch my back occasionally so what 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 might if it worked well what might i ex what i change might i expect to see yeah great question i think the the main uh benefits are very long-term benefits uh, of aging gracefully and being able to continue to move into old age uh, easily. So it's, you know, you can do this as uh, someone who's just trying to get, you know, extremely fit and do it you know, intensely every single day. Uh, and most of us, we didn't become, you know, we didn't lose our fitness overnight. Uh, there was a time when I was in college when I had kind of fallen out of my exercise routine. And for probably a couple of years, I really didn't have any regular movement practice. And it took a long time for me to get back into the swing of things. And I hope that still as you know, I'm, I'm 29 now, I hope that when I'm 
40, in a lot of ways, I'm more fit and more capable than I am at 30. And I don't think that there's any reason to, to stop that uh, at 40. I think that I could be more cap- a more capable mover at 50, uh, more capable mover at 60, and, and so on. There was a guy named uh, Art Devaney, who was uh, an Olympic baseball player, I believe, who also was a, an economist and statistician, who first introduced me to the idea of the, the paleo diet. And uh, he takes this logic of sort of evolutionary fitness into the realm of exercise too, and says that we should be and dieting, diet, diet and D- dieting too. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. well, diet. Right. So, so the the evolutionary mentality applied to diet is often popularized as this paleo diet, which we will talk about later. And I think that there are some you know speculative. Uh, issues there, but there's there's always a more nuanced picture that's emerging. Um, yes. And when it comes to movement, what what Art Devaney emphasized was the importance of two kinds of movement. One is the slower, more intentional movement, so regular walking, which I know is a, a big part of of your routine. And then the the other side of that is short and intense bursts of exercise. And so when people go to the gym, a lot of times they're running on a treadmill for half an hour, 45 minutes. And this falls into this category of kind of chronic cardio, where we're putting our body under an amount of stress that, that wears it down over time. You'll notice a lot of runners uh, develop knee problems and joint problems with, with age because you're just overusing the, the parts of the body in a way that they weren't designed to be used. Whereas if we follow more natural movement patterns, and we occasionally do these short bursts of intense activity, it applies a stressor that rather than breaking down the body, actually makes it stronger and more resilient. Uh, There's a related concept that uh, another economist, Nassim Taleb, talks about, which is anti-fragility, systems that gain from disorder. And if if we apply uh, a stress to, uh, to a muscle, it gets stronger. Um, and this, this is characteristic of a lot of kind of natural systems in a way that most man-made systems and machines don't have this, this property of anti-fragility. And of course, there's a certain point past which if you apply too much stress, you'll get injured. Uh, but kind of learning, learning your body and learning how your body works and applying this daily and figuring out progressions that can get you from uh, simple movements to more complex and more intense movements safely. Uh, gives you a way to get stronger as you get older and be able to just be more flexible and adaptive in a lot of situations. So I can see a picture here. Uh, first of all, I, I, I know that you get people coming to you um, who are around my age who want to uh, be able to play with their grandchildren. And, and this is going to give them the energy and the ability to do so without suddenly rupturing their back. I, I've been in enough uh, football games, soccer games, as you Americans say, um, where if you get a, a gathering of guys together, uh, you know, a, a sort of meeting of people who knew each other when they were 20 and say, what do we do when we gather when we're 45? Well, mm-hmm. we all have a game of football because that's what we did when we were 20. Half the people haven't played for 25 years and there's always an inju- injury. Somebody always ruptures themselves really badly. Yeah. Um, and so um, what, what I can see is something that allows us in a way that's appropriate to the body as it is. So in other words, you, what you're talking about is stretching it, but not, um, 
not br- blowing it apart, so to speak. Exactly. Uh, so that whatever age we are, uh, we it will be graceful. The other thing that comes to mind, uh, strangely, is I don't know whatever I did. Maybe it's just my age, but uh, you know how do you get these adverts? They so, they work something else out about you, and suddenly I'm getting these adverts for these people. You know, there's this special diet where you have like, you won't believe this, but I'm 63 and he's got the body of a you know a 25 year old who's been doing weights for 15 years or something. All you have to do is eat this special. It's steroids, David. It's, it's, uh, okay. it's steroids. <laughs> okay, so. Spoiler. <laughs> uh, but, um, and of course, it, there's something distasteful about this, it, mm-hmm. that. Uh, that really is old people trying to be young people when, it, when it, it's not right. Um, whereas, uh, it seems to me, whereas what you're talking about is um, improving old age in a way that is appropriate to the age we are. Now, that seems right to me. That's, there's something... Uh, well balanced about that. Is that is that fair? Yeah, and I think to amend a little bit of what I was saying about being you know a better mover at age fifty and sixty and seventy, uh, there's there will be certain ways where the technique will come to compensate for the degradation of certain you know vital functions, and and eventually with old age, you know you do you you lose some muscle mass, you lose you know testosterone drops, and and there are things that uh, eventually, you're, you're kind of fighting an, up, an uphill battle against. Uh, but I do think that the compensation of technique and being able to uh, just use, use your body more sort of uh, strategically um, and, and expend your energy and expend your movements in a way that is more efficient um, play, plays into this, this whole narrative. And so what is graceful movement except, you know, expending just the right amount of energies in, in the ways that, that are, uh, are needed and, and no more and no less in a way you can kind of imagine, you know, you, you reach for the glass too quickly and you knock it over or, you know, you sort of, you know, can't quite get it and, and, and lift it up. Whereas there's, there's sort of this happy medium of being able to just pick it up, take a sip and everything is in control it reminds me a little bit of your description of your uh, your mentor David Bertwistle, uh, and and how he you know had some health challenges that made it very painful for him to to walk even, yes. but still he was able to comport himself with this uh, graceful way of of moving. Well, it's funny. I was just about to go into that. I'd forgotten about David, but you're right because as soon as you mentioned grace, then of course that is graceful movement uh, there is the connection with the spiritual what what is grace it is a free gift from god in other words they, we have a sense that when people move beautifully um in a way that uh, they ought to there is a dignity there is a beauty and mm-hmm. and when and, and i hadn't even thought about it till you just said that one of the things that attracted me to david was the dignity his bearing somehow um that he had, so I don't think I'm sure he hadn't done move that, but um, there was so, it, it wasn't just how he wasn't slumped in his chair. Suddenly, I look at you and look at me and think, "Oh gosh, I better, better sit up straight a little bit here. I'm a bit yeah. of a sloucher." Um, but the, his bearing um, and it, it said something about who he was. And if we do this with a view to 
thinking that this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We, we are given this extraordinary privilege to, to be, to, if you like, um, receive God. And, and he loves us and um, dwells in us in a particular way uh, that really uh, we should be mindful of in almost everything we do in, uh, in some way. And I think this grace and beauty and dignity, this is what you're talking about. And I like the sound of, uh, of what you're doing, uh, largely because at the moment it's largely devoid of spiritual uh, baggage, <laughs> which if, if it had been done in the modern world would almost certainly be detrimental. And so it's something, therefore, that I think we could take on and then start to adapt and inform our daily activities. And even down to the way that we kneel and uh, walk and um, you know, bow, for example, right. in the liturgy, all of these things, we can start to think about grace and beauty because that's natural movement. Yeah, I think going back to just the, the two simplest movements, uh, breathing and the other is sort of a static, more of a static thing, but posture. Uh, and it's funny, I was thinking about how... Um, and th this doesn't really speak necessarily to the spirituality, but the, the uh, you know, ever popular Jordan Peterson, his book, yes. which I haven't read, but the 12 rules for life. I think his first rule is stand up straight with your shoulders back. And this <laughs> posture is, is symbolic uh, and also kind of actually generates the, the symbol that it represents of a kind of attitude towards the world where you're, uh, you're, you're, I don't know exactly how he frames it, but I would, I would guess that it has something to do with, you know, confronting life on life's terms and uh, being, being resilient in the face of difficulties. And that the exterior posture, I think, has a way of influencing the interior state. And so... Yes, and, and we know that with prayer, just to kneel is, is an act of humility, to prostrate yourself, in other words, is an act of humility. Um, and I, I remember the lecture I got from David about wearing Sunday best for Sunday. You know, this is respect for God. And so I think if it's done out of respect for others um, to demonstrate that we are God's people, if you like, then all of this is good. If it's, in other words, it's informing good manners, to use another traditional idea, that, um, and dignity so that it helps us to be a service to others and that all of this can be twisted and generally it is in the modern world the model on the catwalk has a has great posture but it's all about look at me look at me right. Um, right. so all of this can be done in the wrong way um, and that is why uh, to do so in a way that i think your method I, i'm speculating allows for the possibility of a fresh start if you like um, now i want to get to I, i'm going to just sort of push back a little on your uh, initial justification. Um, and uh, then we'll just see, I'd just be interested to know what you think about this. So I'm very interested and positive about this idea of natural motion um, and the idea of looking to the past to see how people, see what people used to do when we used our bodies more. All of that makes absolute sense to me. Um, the, and uh, what I would say is that I don't think you need to use the evolutionary argument in order to justify it. Um, 
we can say that what, what we're doing is looking at the past and the activities that people have done in order to find out what is natural for the human body as it is today, mm-hmm. with a view, therefore, to making us more of what we ought to be in the future. That is the Christian approach. It's teleological right. rather than uh, looking for the, uh, these. I know we believe in Eden. But ultimately, we don't know whether that prehistoric man you're talking about is the fallen man or whether that's Adam. Um, right. and, and probably uh, the fact that man moved out of that state suggests that he was the fallen man because he had to, get, he had to adapt to his environment, he had to work out, and so he used his intellect. Uh, but nevertheless, that doesn't undermine any of the, uh, the way in which you do what you do and its adaptability. Um, I would. Um, rather to a Christian audience, if you like, say that this is really anticipating um, by looking at the past and looking at tradition, and, and we've, we've talked about these ideas of grace and dignity, uh, traditional movement, um, and what people used to do in the past, so that we can therefore look to the future and be more what, in, what we ought to be. And, and the, the history of man is always this, that we adapt to a situation and then we have to compensate you know we overcompensate and so we're moving forward in a way that corrects what we do and this this again seems natural and with god's grace this can be informed so that it becomes something that's even better that that than even prehistoric man did that is that is what we believe as christians but we do have to look to the past uh, and and all of this scientific analysis and uh, I don't know if we really know anywhere. Evolution, as far as I understand it, from the point of view as a scientist, even this is controversial, but I see it as a hypothesis, which is not is being questioned by scientists today. But that doesn't matter from the point of view of what you're saying. Uh, I think it's good to look at the past and think about what can we be, how can we be even better, have the, the benefits of today's uh, movements and life and move forward in an even better way. Uh, how does that sound to you? Yeah, the evolution question is, is an, an interesting one, and I'm not up to date on the on all of the the latest theories of how the uh, you know how how we came to to exist in this in, in the in the modern form. I do think that um, you know we know that at, at the very least there was a time when there were humans that, that existed prior to agriculture and that there was this shift that took place. And it's actually recorded, not in a way that you would find it in a scientific textbook, but it's recorded with pretty remarkable accuracy based on the archeological evidence that we're now finding, how, you know, where agriculture originated in the Fertile Crescent, um, what, what life kind of might've been like prior to the, the advent of, of Neolithic farming, starting around 40,000 years ago, but really intensifying around 10,000 years ago. Uh, and, and we actually have recorded in Genesis what, uh, what some people consider to be a collective memory, where, um, where, where this, there, there, there was a time, and even the flood, the, the evidence has it that, that this, this you know, flood played a role in really changing the landscape and in making it more uh, feasible for people to, to do the, the, the kinds of farming that we see uh, in recorded human history. 
And there's something that happens, I think, in that shift that uh, is also recorded in Genesis, which is perceived as a little bit traumatic. Uh, maybe, maybe that's even kind of an understatement. Um, the Genesis uh, refers to the pains of childbirth becoming more severe. Uh, you know, God kind of says that, that I will make your, your pains in childbirth more severe. Uh, and uh, this is like part of the curse of, of the fall is that by the sweat of, by the sweat of thy face, uh, you know, we, we have to work the, the land. And the, the shift to agriculture um, may not have been embraced entirely voluntarily in the sense of at one point we were doing something that was uh, hard and unpleasant and then we, we found this better way and we moved into it but it, it's more of this gradual development where once you start doing it it's very hard to stop and once you start to produce more from the land then your population grows and suddenly you need to do even more farming and you need to you need better technology to get more stuff out of the land and this is a narrative that I'm kind of uh, playing with just in my own time as I, as I think these things through. But, um, and it segues into the conversation about food. Yes, but, we're going to get onto that. But you can imagine that prior to farming, there was maybe a lot more diversity of movement needed for the kind of hunter, hunter-gatherer lifestyle that we know existed in some form before farming. Uh, and then with the advent of farming, we have a lot more repetitive work that has to be done on a very tight schedule throughout the year. And it goes hand in hand with, I think, a lot of the, the more stifling patterns and rhythms that we have today, where, you know, it's all, it, it, rather than the kind of intermittent uh, bursts of intense activity, followed by uh, a, a feast of sorts, and then followed by a fast, um, we have the ability to consume from a store of grain and that allows us to kind of regiment our meals in the in this way that turns out to actually be uh, unhealthy if if we don't moderate it because we have this surplus, uh, but it's a surplus of something that is deficient in a lot of the nutrients that that our bodies are are kind of designed to thrive on. Okay, um, let's let's go on to diet. Before we do, uh, there's just one little area. I'm gonna I'm gonna say to you, I I feel um, uneasy equating in any way uh the, the that we well i would i would i think it's speculation shall we say it's hypothetical in other words it's hypothesis at this stage i wouldn't say it's a scientific interpretation to say that um we are observing uh man before the fall and man after the fall i think uh, i would be hesitant to jump on board with that um, and and make such strong parallels with Genesis, um, the book of Genesis. I am very happy to believe that um, there were aspects of that life that were better in terms of human health than they are for us now. Um, but but always, I think that um, once the fall occurs, and uh, as I say, I'm not ruling it out, but I'm going to say I'm I'm, I'm wary of. of of so clearly connecting this sort of earlier stage with what with the with the fall, uh, I, I, I would tend to assume that we're talking about fallen man in all the records that, that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that we can prove either way. So, but shall we say even those that uh, go with me on this, we can you know we don't know. It's very we we can't uh, really prove it either way. I would say. 
um, that we don't need to have that sort of evolutionary idea that everything you say makes sense just on the face of it. Man has developed uh, by, uh, in terms of his, the way that he interacts with his environment. For the most part, this has been hugely beneficial. That, the, that um, in, in the doing this, um, by, largely by the value of the intellect, uh, driven by that, he has been able to farm, to produce more food. Uh, the population has grown, whereas previously there, there wouldn't, wouldn't have been the food available. All of this is good, and this is why he wanted to do it. Um, in the process, there have been certain detrimental effects. And now, at our point, we have the luxury of having enough that it's not a, a question of how much for us in the West, at least. So I'm not uh, ignoring the fact that there are some who don't have enough. But I think the world can produce enough food at this point to feed the whole of its population. Um, we are in the, the luxurious position of being able to analyze these things more deeply. And I think all of this scientific, scientific approach to the analysis is sound and we can learn from it. And the proof of the pudding, shall we say, is, or the proof of the diet or the proof of the eating, um, really is what effect does it have on us now? And I think that all you're describing gives us a, a, a possibilities of a good effect. Um, so let's go on to diet. I'll give you a last word if you want to push back on me on that. Uh, and then we'll go on to the, the issue of diet and, and fasting um, and how uh, modern approaches might combine with traditional. But, but first of all, just react to what I said. Yeah, yeah, I, I th yeah. I'm, in, I'm in complete agreement. You know, people are good. I think when it comes to the technology, uh, in, in particular, the, te the technology that enabled more intensive farming, it's mixed. And then I would say that certain forms of industrial agriculture uh, and even certain forms of intensive farming that, that began uh, 10,000 years ago, we can say are a negative invention for humanity, uh, that, that the, the cons have outweighed the pros. Um, with, with respect to evolution and whether or not we can kind of make sense of this uh, without recourse to an evolutionary argument, I think that that's true. Um, we can talk about uh, our ancestors. We can talk about recent ancestors who did not have uh, the same co comforts and conveniences that we have today um, and who were more robust and vital as a result. Now, a lot of them might have died from diseases that we now have the cures for, or you know, you, you break an arm and that's a death sentence, whereas today you go to the emergency room and you, you get the, the broken bone set. Uh, so obviously, the technology is, is a mixed bag, and there are a lot of things that we can point to that are beneficial. Um, I, think, I think that that sums up my position. Okay. The, the other point I want to make is that I, I'm not dogmatically against evolution either. I, I just, the point I want to make is that it is, uh, in the, it's certainly in the way that we're using it, it is hypothetical. In other words, it's a hypothesis. Um, and it, and I'd, maybe in some respect it's moved to theorem in, if we're applying the scientific method. Um, but even theorems can be overturned. overturned. So I, the, the, in a way, what I want to do is strengthen the validity of this and not make it dependent upon evolution for its, for its validity. I, I think we can go beyond that. If evolution turns out to be something that is sound, that, that, there's nothing to fear as a Catholic. It's not, it, it doesn't contravene at all. In many ways, if you 
you can just view it as a, as a mechanism for teleological uh, existence. Yeah, well, I, I think the one thing that, that I'm fairly certain goes beyond theorem is just the idea of, uh, of selection, you know, the process of, of selection that results in, uh, you know, for, for example, we can say that the corn and tomatoes of today and apples of today are very different from the apples of 40,000 years ago because humans have accelerated this process of change by selecting the plants with the genes that, that uh, are most beneficial from our point of view. And that there's been a similar selection uh, within human populations where we've actually become better adapted to modern agricultural life. And the people who have survived are the ones who possess the enzyme to digest uh, lactose, for example. So people who can consume dairy from, uh, from, from domesticated animals have a distinct advantage over the ones that just you know, get sick and need to uh, go off into the woods by themselves for yeah. a while after uh, having a, a glass of milk. And same thing with, with grains, that the, the humans who can process grains to a greater extent have, a, have a, an adaptive advantage. And so that's a sort of small scale, whether it's evolution or just a selection process that results in a, in a gradual change of what our, what our bodies are. are um, yeah, I, I'd agree with that and accept, accept all of that. I, I, just a little bit of terminology in the way that I use it. So in the scientific method, hypothesis is the initial proposition based upon the data. Mm -hmm. uh, in order to, to make the transition to theorem, it has to predict something, which is then, which was previously known and is then observed. Um, and uh, so theorem is as, is as far as scientific proof can go. And even theorem is provisional in the scientific. Right, so okay. Additional evidence might uh, prove that, but the, 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 the only, the, the best, um, the thing, uh, to, to use a phrase of someone that you know, one of the guests on your show, uh, what keeps science honest is technology. In the end, what, the reason we know something works is you produce something and is you, you keep on using it. The car moves forward. So therefore, we assume that the theory behind it is good. But even that isn't absolute proof. Uh, but right. and with regard to evolution, I'm thinking of something much more deeper than what you're the, the, the origin of species mm -hmm. uh, is. Uh, and, and I think that might be question but uh, no doubt that will well i hope it does bring a hail of of, uh, of um, remarks and comments because it means that somebody's listening but yeah uh, let, let's move on from that uh, let's go then on to diet and fasting again something that i know you have your own theories about i've got an interest in uh one as a christian because i've recently uh shown a lot more interest in fasting and tried to really apply it into my life much more rigorously than I did in the past. Um, and then, uh, and I'm trying to do this in a way that is not neurotic or <laughs> um, going to cause me damage. I want to do this in a way that's harmonious with my faith. But also, just as someone in my age, you inevitably put on weight. You have to start thinking about things. When I was your age, uh, certainly the prior, period prior to that, there's a lot of sport. I basically didn't need to think about what I ate. I could just... Mm -hmm just eat until I was full. It didn't matter what it was. I just pretty much looked the same. So anyway, why don't you talk, you started to, to talk about this. Talk about how you approach this um, in your, your stage of life. You're a 29-year-old, um, interested in diet and exercise, and also a, a Catholic who's serious about his faith. So 
give us the background on that as well, please. Yeah, I think first I came at it from just a, a pure health point of view. This was when I was in college, and again, I first encountered these ideas through the uh, economist and evolutionary fitness uh, guru of sorts, Art Devaney, who in his 70s looked like he was in better shape than you know most athletes in their 20s. And uh, so that, that got my attention, and he talked about the benefits of intermittent fasting, which is just a fancy way of saying you know, you don't eat sometimes, uh, rather than the norm, which is three meals a day with snacks interspersed uh, between meals. And so you can kind of contrast the, the, the fasting way, the intermittent fasting from the modern grazing. And grazing is, uh, is, is generally, uh, I think, implicated in, in a lot of the health problems that we see skyrocketing from diabetes to insulin uh, to, to uh, obesity and it, it the explanation that resonated with me had to do with this uh, this hormone of insulin which is responsible for regulating the the blood sugar levels and it transports sugar when it is in dangerous levels in our bloodstream transports them out of the bloodstream and into either the liver to be processed or uh, into our, our cells as, as uh, extra fat. And, um, and it, at that time, I was not particularly struggling with my weight, but I, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, kind of optimize. And it seemed like I could get more joy from eating if I embraced something that let me eat, you know, more and, uh, and, and more delicious foods in certain time windows than if I was just eating you know, mediocre tasting food throughout the day. So the first thing that I adopted and that I've kind of that's, that's stuck with me is just uh, generally skipping breakfast. And if I eat between the window of 12 noon to 8 p.m., usually I eat kind of a late dinner, that's an eight-hour window that leaves a 16-hour window of fasting. And in that time, uh, when I wake up in the morning, I'll usually have a cup of tea or coffee. I might even put a little bit of heavy cream in it because that doesn't generate the same insulin response that something like a bowl of cereal or a piece of bread would. Uh, so it gives you a lot of the same benefits of, of the pure fasting without as much of the difficulty and as much of the hunger. Um, but that, I think, only scratches the surface. And when you talk about the spiritual benefits of fasting, there could be even be some virtue in uh, not trying to make it as easy as possible, but embracing the the difficulty of it. And <laughs> either way, our body does adapt, and the first time you fast is is going to be harder than uh, subsequent times. And if you can make it a habit, then your body does adapt to being in this fasted state. And there are all kinds of health benefits. Basically, the reversal of that uh, insulin dynamic: you become your cells become more sensitive insulin and less likely to, uh, to, to store calories as fat and more likely to burn them when they're available. So that this general kind of uh, upregulating of our metabolism to make our, our, our uh, eating and moving more efficiently linked. Um, and, and that was the natural rhythm, I think, of, uh, of our ancestors and, and in more modern societies, kind of all the successful ones have enshrine some sort of fasting practice uh, as a religious discipline. 
and that doesn't seem like it's you know it's not a it's not a pure coincidence uh, and and as you learn to discipline yourself in your intake of food that has carryover benefits to strengthen your discipline in other areas just to ignore other kinds of cravings and be able to focus on what it is that you think is is your your real important task um so i think that it has made me kind of a just overall a, a more disciplined person and it's almost like if you think about how do you strengthen willpower mm -hmm. um there's this infinite nesting problem where it's like well you need more willpower to to exercise willpower and it kind of comes <laughs> down to what's the actual lever and i think that fasting is probably the single best lever that we have yes. it's just and it's not even an action it's a it's a non-action in the yes. same way that prayers is kind of a you know it, it, it's a uh it's more of a passive uh action than a than an active action it's not so a the, in terms of the body it, it's right it, right it, it can be active and passive mentally and spiritually but, but yes in terms right. of the body, yeah i agree yeah um so not eating just has has health benefits uh it can boost your mood and i found that it definitely leads me to, to just have a, an overall better mood than if i'm if i'm constantly snacking when I snack, I, you know, then I, then I get the craving that I'm more irritable and everything is just yes. a little bit more difficult. Uh, and then we can also talk a little bit about some of the anti-aging benefits that exist from fasting. Okay. Before we get onto that, I, that's, that's terrific. I, um, here's, a, here's a principle I'm going to throw at you uh, that let's seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these mm -hmm. things will be given unto you. So... In regard to this, I'm going to suggest that we aim first to, to adopt the spiritual practice and then build your diet for health reasons, should we say, around that pattern of the spiritual. Um, this was something that drove this home to me. It was just a little conversation I heard actually at my church. This, this guy um, said, he, he said, I'm going to tell you the secret. He was quite a... a storyteller and he didn't know whether it was slightly tongue-in-cheek so i'm going to tell you the secret of everything here he said this is what you do i lost 50 pounds through this he said i just fasted one day a week i went 24 hours without food the rest of the time i just ate what i wanted mm -hmm. and uh sitting in front of him were uh michelle akkad who some people will know he's he teaches at pontifex university he's also a medical doctor um and his wife, who's very interested in uh, Avelina, who actually I've been uh, taking some advice from with regard to diet. She's an instructor in a, in a sort of weight loss method that maintains weight once you've lost the weight. So I saw the change in her and asked her about it. I said, well, I'll tell you what it is. Here we go. So I've been doing that. But um, the, what, what was interesting, they were there, and Michel knew about the, the, you know, a lot of the things that you're talking about. He's a doctor who's interested in this. And he, he didn't disagree. He just said, yes, provided it's coupled with prayer. Hmm. That's what he said. And I think that's the missing thing. <laughs> and I would say also that uh, maybe our rhythm of exercise, we don't think about when we exercise, but perhaps this should be married with it. Mm -hmm. And we match that with the pattern of prayer, exercise, eating. It's very common to pray and then eat, for example. That, mm -hmm. that we always have a meal at church, the church I go to, after the Sunday liturgy. And if we do a Vespers, we eat afterwards. Um, but the two are certainly associated together. We, when we have our Monday group, I'm going to try, I just, it just suddenly occurred to me, we, 
you know, we should put a bit of food out. So we have our Monday Vespers in the evening. So you associate one with the other. But maybe this, this is something that can be worked into this. When you do this, then each will inform the other. And you're more likely to be able to maintain all of them anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to throw that out there. Exactly how people implement this. I think this is where you need spiritual direction. You do it gradually. We're talking for people who have never done it before. I'm in my sort of second or third year of approaching a Lent, okay, where the first year I just, I just faced it with horror, I have to say. I just thought, I don't think I can cut anything out for that length of time. Um, and now I'm at a stage where I, I can contemplate. I'm almost looking forward to just to see whether I can do it, which is not the right reason to look forward to it. I know, before you correct me, but nevertheless, at least it's a better attitude than what I used to have. Um, but when we, we, we that, at the very least, we need to think how these things and the pattern of activity and inactivity are harmonized in, with the, the prayer and the liturgy as the governing principle. Mm. So anyway, I'll throw that back at you, and you can respond to that if you want to, or just go straight into what you wanted to say about the anti-aging or anything else in connection with this you have. No, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And uh, for one thing, for all of the abstract kind of intellectual benefits of of fasting, um, when when the rubber hits the road, like the unpleasantness of it uh, requires, I think uh, you know, a, a spiritual component. And yes. that's where, and I think you know, regular scripture reading too, just to be reminded of uh, the fact that. There is this, and, and it plays into the, the liturgy as well, and, and uh, you know, receiving the Eucharist, which is a, a form of sustenance that's entirely different than what we get from, from food, or I mean, I, I guess I, it's, it's super substantial. It's, it's more, <laughs> uh, more filling in some ways. And, exactly. That's a great, great way of putting it. Yes, it, there is a, some nutritious value. I, there has to be. I, right. But even in that wafer, you know, but as you say, it's giving us so much more. Yeah. And Jesus, you know, calls himself the bread of life and uh, whoever comes to him will not hunger. And having those kinds of, kinds of realities embedded within you uh, makes, makes the discipline, I think, you know, real in a, in a way that, and more effective. Um, and I'm just going to throw this back at you. You, you brought this, you used this word, in connection with both of these things that you do joyful mm. this is in yes. the end even if the activity itself might be a little onerous at times temporarily we're talking about the sign of this is that it gives us a joyful life that that is the and and again we need to be careful there are there are ways in which we can be distracted by temporary happiness or that which we might call pleasure mm. that is superficial and can distract us but this gives the possibility of all of these levels of pleasure and happiness, but all are ordered to the greatest joy, which is that union with God. All these things can be joyful and contribute to them. They're not at odds with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I think applied to exercise too, it's, it's interesting thinking about kind of praying before exercising, or I've even thought about implementing a rule where I don't exercise, I don't do anything that is that compartmentalized form of exercise for more time in the day than I spend in prayer. Uh, because as St. Paul says, you know, exercise profits the body a little, but, uh, but godliness is profitable 
for everything. So yes, it, it, it's uh, you can get into. I think that exercise can become a form of idolatry. I agree. It's aimed at just you know getting the the body that you want and to you know be a uh, you know if if it's just for these kind of worldly worldly ends. Well, exactly. It's it's treating the body as a tool uh, as a it, for to enable us to get what we desire. Uh, right. That is less than God. We, when you we use it as a means to enable us to get what we to, to help us to move towards God, mm-hmm. and that is legitimate. But when we when the end is is less than God, all these problems occur, and to a degree, it's going to be there in all of us. We can't help it. Uh, but at least we're we're aware of try, trying to move away from it. At least, yeah. And you, you mentioned at the beginning the kind of theology, my my theology around this. And while I don't claim to have uh, any particularly deep theology, I'll just go back to uh, an earlier episode of this podcast that we did, yes. where you talked about um, God the gardener and yes. this kind of unique vocation to steward the resources of the earth and to yes. make it more beautiful. And I think that it, it it's kind of obvious once you realize it, but that work will not be accomplished solely sitting behind a computer screen and moving around bits on, on some servers somewhere. This involves like a physical embodied practice of getting out there and actually doing the work in the earth and with the earth. So I think that that vocation to, uh, to, to kind of have uh, dominion over, over God's creation and to be a, a co-creator uh, of, of this more, beautiful world that that has all kinds of plants some of them we eat some of them we just look at uh that plays into my idea of how we should be expending our movement um i am right behind that and then also of course we are part of god's creation to be in a a sense one of the aspects of man that is unique as far as i is this ability to take a step out of himself and look at himself this is what the spirit does it regards it's 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 by the way we become self-conscious in a in a unique way, mm-hmm. and we are part of creation in that way. You know, it is our duty to to till the ground of our own humanity, if you like. It's it's not separated from that, and so by that the actions by when we direct our activities to uh, what you were just describing, external things for the glory of God we are as well having an impact on ourselves. And so all of this plays together in a, in a beautiful way when you think of it like that. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful how it's, that none of this is in conflict when we understand it in that way. Right. And then it's also, to go back to the fasting for a second, it, it's not to entirely diminish the health benefits. And I do think that... Uh, Sometimes I've seen this overdone too. Um, among uh, when I when I became Catholic, it was nice to see that fasting had a, a special role. Uh, maybe not as strong a tradition as as some of the the Eastern Orthodox churches or even uh, your the, the Byzantine rite or the Eastern rite of of the Catholic Church. But um, you can go too far, I think, in saying you know don't don't fast for health reasons. It's not about health because that is part of the picture. And I think that, you know, God wants us to be healthy and, and, yes. uh, and so, you know, just in line with that, when, when you're in a difficult part of the fast and you're really craving that thing, if you just kind of keep in mind 
that uh, that there is that it can it can almost feel. I think we have to fight against the instinct um, that's telling us like that this fast is unhealthy. But you're not going to die from skipping a meal. You're not going to die from even not eating for a day unless you have a, 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 a medical condition. And you know that this is where the disclaimer comes back into play. But uh, but in general, I think our tendency is to feel the the symptoms of hunger as far more pressing and urgent than they actually are. Yes, I I, I love that, Charlie. It, it's it's very important that we don't deny other benefits and don't think of them as bad as somehow being in opposition. They are in opposition if they undermine um, and work. They can we can allow them, should we say, to be contrary to our spiritual being. So if, if doing it for our health is the sole reason we do it out of vanity, then that's a problem. But if we acknowledge that it's good to be healthy and that part of us wrongly uh, is, is, is vain as well, we say, well, I want to work on that, but it's still a good reason to do it for health and for, for our um, general appearance, um, that is giving glory to God, if, but again, that we, we want to seek that ideal of doing this for the, in order to serve God and to serve others. And I, I, I agree with you fully that we, we must not suddenly say that to want any of these other benefits is automatically wrong or in opposition to it. Mm. Uh, it, can be, it can be in harmony with it. And that's, what, that's the ideal we're striving for. All these lesser goods serving the highest good. Yeah. Uh, maybe just to kind of bring it full circle and go back to the the anecdote at the beginning that you gave about yes. uh, the yoga and the connection to spirituality. What's the thought that I just had uh, is is that maybe rather than striving to imitate the model where there are yoga studios and there's usually an instructor leading a class who are kind of the the disciples. I don't know that that can easily be adapted to either the uh, the MoveNet model, or that it necessarily would would integrate all that well with with my with with Christian spirituality. Um, right. I think that there might be, at least the way that I see it, uh, and and the the way that I am currently working with people and the the kinds of people that I would want to work with is uh, teaching them, uh, giving them a foundation of certain skills and techniques that have applicability. To whatever they're already doing in their own lives and just trying to do it more gracefully. And for me, my chosen setting is to do it out in nature um, and to do it in a place where, uh, where you have a variety of things that you can interact with, but it doesn't require any specialized equipment uh, or uh, doesn't require, you know, getting a gym membership or renting a, a studio space. It's kind of minimalist in that way, but, uh, but also, actually has uh, a much richer environment for teaching skills that, that are uh, applicable to, to everyday life. Right. Um, and so that's something that if, if people are interested in it, they can check out uh, the, the meetup group that I run, yeah. uh, which is uh, the Movement Tribe in, in Berkeley. And I also do have a, a website that I uh, am not particularly uh, – good about updating, but a natural method.com. So the letter a natural method.com. And that has just more of the kind of theory behind this and a few articles that I've written that talk more about 
what I think are the the best sources of nutrition and some of my own theories that I don't think we'll uh, we'll necessarily need to get into today. Because those okay. also get into speculative territory, but that, that's fine. Uh, um, but presumably, people can get in touch with you through that website. Yes. They? Okay, yeah. that's terrific. That's terrific. Uh, I'm back to you. There's some who want to continue this. All right. Just before we, that would have been a nice moment to close, except that we didn't get onto the anti-aging. Oh right. Uh, so we'll have a sort of postscript. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about that and what you wanted to, to say in regard to that? Yeah, my understanding is uh, is not uh, rooted in a, a in-depth biological expertise, but there is a process uh, that that is pretty well well documented, and you can you know look this up and it, it checks out uh, called autophagy, which just means basically cells eating themselves, uh, and our our cells have uh, a lot of kind of excess junk that accumulates over time, uh, things like old mitochondria and little organelles, little, little pieces of the cell that have passed their expiration date. And when we're young, uh, for the most part, the cells can kind of automatically just recycle these parts. But as we get older, they just start to accumulate. And uh, these have been found to have links to cancer and, and other diseases. And what fasting does is it it kind of sends the signals to the cells that um, you know they don't have this abundant uh, new new sources of energy, and they they resort to uh, eating the the old expired parts of the cell. And so it's a way of it's a kind of bodily maintenance that uh, that you get from fasting. And um, like I say, I, yeah, I'm not a I'm not a uh, an expert on that, but uh, but I. It it, uh, it appears to be just one of many benefits, not the prime benefit, but certainly certainly up there. Yes, and I mean, I for one want to live a long and active and healthy life. I've got so many reasons. One, I enjoy living, <laughs> and, and uh, I hope to get into the next world and uh, be in union with God. But I, I don't mind if it's delayed while I have a, a joyful life here, serving Him, and. Um, so, uh, I, I again, I, I can. It, it seems to make sense. You've only got to, you know. There's so many uh, anecdotal stories, and I think research that shows that, for example, the life of monks they live a long time, and mm-hmm. um, and generally the focus is on their prayer and the rhythm of life. But it might be the eating as well. We just don't, you know, I imagine there's so many aspects of that. The community you have around you, the relationships you have um, that are generated in a particular way, the ability to relate to others that uh, living in such a community gives you. And really, there's no reason that we can't aim to draw that, those aspects of that life into what we do on a daily basis as lay people. This has been the whole purpose of this series of, uh, podcasts, the cloister in the cul-de-sac, we're calling mm-hmm. this collectively, really is to to emphasize this. Um, and so all of this, it, at the very least, it has to be worth considering. They're not things that uh, we don't need to worry about. We just worry about the spiritual. The rest is just, just something that uh, is part of this sort of fallen world and we want to discard it. It's, we bring the, the, what is good, all that is good, in, into a harmony with this foundation of the spiritual life of the Eucharist at its center. Okay, 
Uh, last word, Charlie, and then we'll we'll wind up. Well, yeah, I think um, the you know fasting is uh, it, it seems to be a discipline that Western Christianity has kind of left by the wayside, or at least that's been my my perception. And uh, you know, I sometimes say like we we still know how to feast, but we've we've forgotten how to fast, <laughs> and yeah. can't have the feast without the fast. But uh, both both can be joyful. And we should enjoy food. It just uh, it, it shouldn't be the the only thing that we enjoy. That's right. Feasting and fasting, and a life of joy. What could be better than that? Charlie Dice, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks, David.